0: All right. All right. I'm, I'm shutting you in. Where are we going? Uh, Wherever Mia tells me to go. <laughs> 101 North. We're going north, folks.
1: I'm Mia Sullivan, and you're listening to Places, a podcast documenting stories from offbeat American locations from a girl living in a van. If you're listening for the first time, welcome. I'm so happy you're here, but consider listening to episodes one through 5 first and joining us back here in a bit. The episodes build on each other. In this episode, you'll get a sense of how we're settling in to life in our van, and we'll dive into our first place, Hyndale, Wyoming. Last time on Places, Nick finished building out our sprinter van. Now we're finally setting off on the road, but night one is kind of a disaster. Before we even cross the Golden Gate Bridge, we notice waters leaking out of our newly filled 30 gallon tank. So here we are on the first night of the trip, frantically pulling everything out from the back of the van and wiping water off the floors as cars whiz by us. Nick realizes he needs a part from the hardware store to fix the tank, but it's 9 p.m. so he stuffs some rags around the leak and we continue on. It's dark and Nick keeps pulling over every 20 minutes to check the leak. An expected two-hour drive turns into three. We're exhausted and just want a place to sleep so we head to a campground we've been before. As we finally pull up to the campground at midnight, a gate secured by chains and a large closed sign mocks our arrival, COVID related. We pull into a nearby boat launch. We're not sure whether we're allowed to sleep there, but it's late and we take our chances. The next morning, Nick tries to fix the tank. So what do you think's happening with the water system?
0: The main water inlet valve is leaking. It's not a tight seal. And so when we go up a hill, the water that normally would be sitting at about three quarters full.
1: Rushes to the front of the tank, the, uh, sloshes against the faulty cap, and leaks out. And so
0: when you're going uphill hills, the water is coming out.
1: Nick needs to buy a plug that'll give the tank an airtight seal. Okay, I guess we're going to the hardware store.
2: Yep. Yeah. Son of a gun.
1: After a couple hours of work in the hardware store parking lot, Nick's able to fix the leak, and we get back on the road. It's July 11th. We were originally planning to start the trip on Memorial Day weekend and explore Oregon first, but we delayed things a month because of COVID. So we're saving Oregon for 2021 and spending what's left of summer in the Mountain West, Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. But before shooting east to Idaho, we want some time to decompress. Luke, you want me to throw it? And get used to our van in a familiar place. So we stay in the Shasta Trinity National Forest in Northern California on a little lake and spend a couple days throwing sticks to Luca, reading and making campfires. Settling into life in the van isn't as hard as I thought it might be. Our bed is honestly so comfortable. It's somehow more comfortable than our bed at home. I get used to cooking on our stovetop, trying to remember to crank the fan to its highest setting so the overhead cabinets don't overheat. I clean dishes in our little sink using a foot pump to slowly dispense water, now an acutely limited resource. The faucet's connected to a five gallon water jug under the sink, which lasts us about a day. When it's tapped, we fill it from our 30-gallon tank in the back. And when the big tank is no more, we fill all 35 gallons up at a gas station or campground, usually for free. And every time we refill the five-gallon tank under the sink, we need to dump the corresponding five-gallon tank of gray water, the container that collects the water that flows down our drain. With two humans and a big dog, this place gets dirty fast, so we sweep it out a lot. And I have a frequent urge to reorganize the cabinets. Our goal is to not pay for camping, which feels pretty easy in the West, Idaho, the state we explore first is 40% national forest. And we stay mostly in national forests because they're free when you dispersed camp. Dispersed camping technically means camping outside of designated campgrounds. In practice, it means navigating around a network of extremely bumpy gravel roads. What well, up here? And guessing where a good camping spot might be. These spots don't have bathrooms, water hookups, or garbage cans. They can be as simple as a small space on the side of the road, just big enough to pull a van in, or as epic as a flat spot the size of a basketball court with a river running along the edge.
0: Can I see that, man?
1: we We're about two weeks into the trip, and it's our first night in Montana. We're looking for a place to camp 30 minutes outside Glacier National Park in the Flathead National Forest. We're driving beside a long strip of crystal blue water, surrounded by mountains and evergreen trees.
2: Whoa, look at that view. Yeah, it'd be really nice to have a camp spot with that view.
1: Steep, bumpy, dirt roads splinter off the main road. We drive down one of them. When Nick sees a potential spot,
0: I see a little trail leading back into the woods.
1: He hops out of the van to investigate. False alarm. (laughs) Not much of a trail. Nope. The spot finding process can sometimes take an hour or more. It's kind of cool. I mean, it's, it's got not a very great big, view.
0: but
1: you want to try it? Well,
0: why don't I keep going? There's no fire pit. I might as well drive up a little bit further. I don't think I want to settle quite yet.
1: This is classic Nick spot scoping. He never wants to settle, even if the sun's about to set. It's getting pretty late. I feel like we should just...
0: I mean, it doesn't have a sweeping view or anything like that. It's kind of got like a little bit of a view through the trees. It's 8.45. If we're not staying here tomorrow... But sometimes, he settles.
1: We're trying to avoid touristy spots and spend our time in places that aren't very popular. But there are some popular spots we've gotta go. One of those places is Glacier National Park. Another is Yellowstone. Yellowstone is about 3,500 square miles and touches Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming, but 96% of the parks in Wyoming. We walk along creaky boardwalks out to Chalky White and rust colored travertine towers. Travertine is limestone deposited by hot springs. You stroll out to rainbow colored geothermal pools, gurgling mud pots, and geysers. You gotta see this place. But amid the geologic wonders, right, on, we're packed on narrow walkways on with lots and lots we're of people. On the We're hurriedly snapping photos, and many of them aren't wearing masks. We decide to take a break from the national parks and see a different side of Wyoming. That's after the break. This episode is sponsored by Brad and Laura, the traveling nomads.
0: I'm a traveler myself, and I know it costs a little bit of money to run around the United States, but I wanted to help you guys out and see the things that I haven't seen yet.
1: Well, I love the idea that you and Nick were gonna be traveling the United States. I knew that any monetary help that we could do would further your mission in getting around for an entire year. Thank you both so much for your generous support. If you're interested in sponsoring Places, either for an episode or for the entire series, please reach out to us at info.placesmedia at gmail.com. Okay, back to the show. We're driving through Jackson, Wyoming. It's about 60 miles south of Yellowstone. You've probably heard of it. It's where the ski resort Jackson Hole is. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it, but it's the only place I'd heard of in Wyoming before visiting. This town of 10,000 people hosts over 2.6 million tourists each year. There's a downtown square that's bustling, despite COVID. It consists of dark wooden buildings with shutters and wraparound stoops. The buildings feel like new construction, trying to give off an Old West vibe. They house high-end restaurants and shops geared toward tourists, but we're not gonna stay in Jackson. We point our wheels south and drive 77 miles down Highway 191 to Pinedale, Wyoming, a small town at the base of the Wind River range of the Rocky Mountains. The winds, as people here call them. We're visiting Pinedale on the recommendation of a few people we met in Montana. As we drive into town, there's a big sign that reads, Pinedale, all the civilization you need. The town has a brewery and a hip coffee shop, but it also has places like the Corral Bar, which has been operating since the 30s. Unlike Jackson, the buildings in downtown Pinedale are weathered Many of them have had past lives, like the old Philip 66 station, which now houses that hip coffee shop. We camp in an aspen forest, 25 minutes outside of town. As we drive up that way, toward the mountains, we pass a couple of big lakes and a small ski resort. Short, mint-colored shrubs and lavender wildflowers line the ground. If you look out east, you can see a valley and mountains in the distance. The next morning, we head down to the Sublette County Visitor Center in downtown Pinedale to learn more about the area. The Visitor Center is packed with pamphlets on Pinedale and the winds. The friendly lady at the Visitor Center gives us stapled printouts of recommended day hikes a Pinedale walking tour guide, and the official Sublette County Traveler's Journal, which includes $2 off admission to the Museum of the Mountain Man.
0: A band of white men came to the Rocky Mountains in the 1820s, not to settle the land, but to harvest its riches. The focus of their enterprise was the pelt of the North American beaver. The result was, I guess you might say, a presence in our imaginations that remains undiminished to this day. We call them mountain men.
1: During the 1820s through 1840s, mountain men came to the winds to capitalize on a trend, beaver hats. These fancy top hats made from felted beaver pelts were all the rage among the wealthy of Europe and North America. The mountain men hung out in fierce mountain environments, trapped beavers for their pelts and traded them. Hoping for riches, white men flocked to the mountains and decimated the beaver population in the space of 20 years. Native people had been trapping and trading in these areas for a long time. But when these guys stepped in, they quickly created an unsustainable situation. But all this happened pre Pinedale. And I'm curious about the history of the town. So I talked to the de facto town historian.
3: I'm Anne Chambers Noble. We're sitting at the Chambers House Bed and Breakfast, which is my bed and breakfast, my business. Since we're
1: in COVID times, we sit under an aspen tree outside her bed and breakfast.
3: I'm also a historian by profession. I have at the press right now my fifth book, and I've written exclusively about Wyoming history. She also
1: lives and works on a fifth-generation family cattle ranch just outside Pinedale. She's the head cook and accountant for the ranch.
3: Pinedale was unusual in its founding compared to other towns throughout the West, in that it was a, a planned town. There was a man named John Patterson who wanted to establish a town, and he chose this particular site. This area was the site of two ranches, and Pine Street, which is our main street, was the fence line of two ranchers. Mr.
1: John Patterson, the guy who was interested in making a town, approached these ranchers with a bargain. If you each donate five acres at the edge of your properties, I'll start a town.
3: I will also promise to provide a mercantile, a store, worth something like $2,000 worth of merchandise. And this was in 1904, so that was a very well-stocked store. This was a godsend to the ranchers because obtaining their supplies was very difficult and very challenging. It took teams of horses and wagons on a very, very rough road to either get to Rock Springs or to Old Pal just to get their supplies for the year. So somebody offering to open a store to bring the supplies in for them was very enticing. And just having a town was very enticing because that meant there could be schools, there could be churches. So this plan was hatched and followed through on and in September,
1: John Patterson and the two ranchers established Pinedale.
3: They offered, got word out on a newspaper, that anybody who would come to this town and settle, stay for at least a year, could have a free town lot. So many people did. They came. They came with their young families.
1: Pinedale became a legit town, with a school, a post office, a notary.
3: Throughout the next almost 100 years, the town changed very little. It It had slow and steady,
1: decade-by-decade growth, until around 2000.
3: All of that changed in 2000, when the the oil and gas fields were reopened south of town on what's called the Pinedale Anticline and the Jonah Field.
1: A few businessmen hired scientists to figure out fracking in this tricky rock formation the gas fields took off and Pinedale's population spiked.
3: Thousands of people came to the area to try to make a quick buck. The community was very, very strained and stressed during that time. It was
1: Although this was problem. great for Pinedale economically, Anne says those 10 to 15 years of oil boom times were probably the most difficult years for Pinedale and that the massive influx of money from oil and gas was almost bad for the community.
3: We almost lost that sense of community, that obligation we felt to take care of one another. And part of that was that we didn't know our neighbors anymore. It used to be when you go to the grocery store you knew absolutely everybody in there and you caught up on the town gossip when you went once a week to the grocery store. Now you went to the grocery store and didn't even know who who was there. It seemed like nobody needed to be taken care of because there was so much work that we didn't need to take care of anybody, the gas companies would. And that's actually not quite right because there were still a handful of people that weren't able to take advantage of the employment opportunities.
1: But oil and gas in Pinedale eventually dried up. Here's Terry Allen, a photojournalist at the Pinedale Roundup. He moved to Pinedale 20 years ago but is originally from California.
0: There have been a whole lot of garage sales in this town that people you know, packing up and leaving and going for where the next boom is. Now it's more of a small community, and the people that have stayed are the ranching and the rural people and the small business owners. Now it's under 2,000
1: people. Terry says there are empty storefronts on Pine Street, people work three jobs to get by, and that...
0: Everything that we need to live is imported from other places, except maybe natural gas and
1: beef but Pinedale has tourism going for it. Here's Anne again.
3: Tourism also played a role surprisingly early on too. There During the
1: early 1900s, tourists heading to Yellowstone got off the train in Rock Springs, Wyoming, and sometimes stopped over in Pinedale. Despite social media and Americans' dedication to finding the next up-and-coming mountain town, tourism hasn't ballooned here. According to a report commissioned by the Wyoming Office of Tourism, travel spending in Sublette County, where Pinedale is located, totaled $45.6 million in 2018. Compare that to the almost $1.2 billion spent in Teton County, where Jackson Hole is. Sublette County is actually the only county in Wyoming that hasn't seen tourist spending increase since 2007. I wondered if this had anything to do with Pinedale people's attitude toward tourists.
0: So I noticed the business community, of course, they always want more people coming in. They want to sell more houses. They want to sell more groceries. They want to sell more cowboy boots. Retired people, they just want to calm. They want to be able to go to town without fighting the crowds or the traffic. They want to cross the street without getting run over. And then there's young people coming up, and it seems like I don't know who's thinking about them, but this is their hometown too, so if we don't have some sort of growth or some sort of jobs to keep them here...
1: Are they going to stay? Here's Katie Wyckoff. She's 20 years old, grew up in Pinedale, and works at the brewery here. She's studying to be an esthetician.
3: Um, I actually think tourism is so healthy for our town, especially in the summertime. Our grocery store, our restaurants, our small boutiques, and stuff like that. Tourism is huge for them, and it definitely helps our community survive.
1: But they don't want it to get that super touristy vibe, like their big sister up north.
3: Pine out people tend to dig at Jackson a lot. Jackson is like tourists all the time. And it's so expensive to live there that people kind of get this
0: snobby mentality when they live in.
3: Jackson I guess. I think that there's a lot of people who have worked hard to make this not Jackson.
1: I talk more about the difference between Pinedale and Jackson with a guy who used to live in Teton County where Jackson's located.
2: Just tell me one more time Mm -hmm. what this is gonna it's gonna be.
1: So it's a it's a podcast. Okay. It's on Apple Podcasts and Spotify but it's my own podcast. It's called Places and it's stories about places across the U.S.
2: Okay, uh, my name is Paul Cook and I live in Pinedale and I've been in Northwest Wyoming for 45 years.
1: Paul has white hair and a white mustache, bushy eyebrows, and a gap between his two front teeth. He has a deep, cackly laugh and is wearing a red flannel and suspenders. He's an arborist by trade
2: when i first moved up into the tetons there was a very unique community that was kind of isolated from the craziness of everywhere else and so uh, it had its own persona Uh, lots to do lots of adventures and the same is true here in pinedale too pinedale is one of the last gems in the rough of the northwestern wyoming mountain areas
1: But this isn't the way Paul sees Teton County anymore, the home of Jackson Hole and Wilson.
2: Teton County now, I mean, on a certain level, it's become very commercial, very... Teton County might be able to uh, be referred to a little bit now as maybe the girl that said yes a little too often to the flashy out-of-town money. and uh it's become just a economic cuckoo's nest here's what paul's uh, talking
1: about in 2018 the average income of a teton county dweller was higher than anywhere else in the country at nearly 252 thousand dollars per person so that's taking the income of everyone who lives in the county and dividing it by the number of people in the county For comparison, Manhattanites' average income ranked second at about $194,000 per person. But this wealth in Teton is concentrated among billionaires and millionaires who establish residency in Jackson, likely for the tax benefits, in addition to the world-class skiing. 8 out of $10 made among Teton County residents come from investments instead of wages, and the top 1% pull in an average of $28.2 million annually, but the average earnings for a job in the county sit at $41,052 per year. This scenario makes it incredibly difficult for regular people, people who work at their restaurants, stores, and ski resorts, to afford life in Teton County. According to Zillow, the current median list price of a home in Teton County is a whopping $1.875 million. And there's a big housing shortage, partly because 97% of the county is public land. This creates demand that drives up housing prices even further.
2: In my lifetime, you know, we kind of have gone from uh, economic models of middle-class exceptionalism to investor-class selfishness. It's not about the people, per se. Anymore. It's not about... The
1: Pinedale people I talk to seem skeptical of outside corporate investment as well as outside people. Here's Terry, the photojournalist, again.
0: Right in the beginning, I would just like say I'm from California or I'm from Napa or I'm from wine country. I would hear conversations and they would speak in dramatic terms about how much they hated Californians. And so I just stopped mentioning it. After a little while, when people feel that they can trust you and you're okay and you're part of the town and you care about them, um, it doesn't, it's not an issue anymore. They hated it when Californians were moving in like crazy because Californians were driving up home prices and land prices and all of a sudden, local kids couldn't afford to buy a house couldn't afford to buy a ranch. I try to remember and remind people when it's appropriate that just because your family homesteaded here doesn't necessarily give you more rights to be here than somebody who just moved here because this is still America. And as long as we do remember that we are sort of coming into your home and we should be respectful, then I think
3: we're all right.
1: For those of you considering a move to Pinedale, keep in mind, this place doesn't have some of the amenities you might be used to.
3: Pinedale's a very isolated community. We don't have a shopping mall, we don't have shopping, we don't have a lot of restaurants. (laughs) Um, We make our own entertainment. We've had a book club for years and years and years, and we all take turns hosting it. If you are to survive here successfully in this isolation, you have to embrace it, but accept what it doesn't have. And no matter how cold it is, every day get outside.
1: Ann tells me about a day she recalls that was pouring down rain. She was sitting at the dining room table of her bed and breakfast.
3: But I'm looking out the front through those blurred windows and I see this pink blob going across the sidewalk.
1: It was her neighbor, Sally Mackey,
3: out for her daily walk in the pouring rain with her daughter, wearing her pink coat, using her walker, and she was 98 years old. She got out every single day of her life. <laughs> we also use the mountains a lot. That's our reset button, the mountains, very, very therapeutic. I love to ski. We moved here in the summertime, and then as soon as winter started, my dad was like, here you go, <laughs> put me on a pair of skis, and I've been doing it ever since.
2: We hike and ski and fish, and you know, generally just enjoy the natural beauty, the quietude, just the whole nine yards.
1: We want to see what the Wind River Mountains are all about, so we pack our backpacks for the night and head to Cirque of the Towers. The Cirque is the crown jewel of the winds. It's a spiky semicircle of 12,000-foot granite spires that make up a portion of the Continental Divide. Alpine lakes weave through the floor of the Cirque. We hike in 11 miles on the Big Sandy Trailhead, a well-traveled path. The first half of the trail to the large and serene Big Sandy Lake is pretty easy, but the second half has some major elevation gain. We see lots of rock climbers on the trail, This is a world-renowned climbing spot. We spend the night above North Lake. It's a long, skinny lake enclosed by huge, pine tree speckled boulders. In the morning, we hike up and then down to Lonesome Lake. It looks hunter green in the morning light, and I can see outlines of the pine trees reflecting off the water. The descent down to the lake is grand. Lonesome Lake's huge, but it feels small in comparison to the granite towers jutting out all around us. We see waterfalls nestled into the mountains, and Luca finds a little patch of snow to play in.
0: Is that a microphone? Is that a
1: microphone? Yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, I'm an audio producer, so I'm just recording sounds. <laughs> audio
0: producer of what?
1: Um, so I have a podcast called Places. We're traveling around the country this year, basically making audio documentaries of different places across the country. Yeah, have you guys been here before? Yeah, we. Do. We stop briefly to chat with hikers along the way, and then we do what you have to do when you hike to an alpine lake.
0: <laughs> no
1: matter how cold it is. Ooh. Ooh, it's cold. And that's how I'm trying to approach this trip. Just take the plunge. Even though it may be uncomfortable at first. I was uncomfortable the morning I started chatting with people in Pinedale, trying to recruit interview subjects for this episode. But it turned into the most enriching experience I've had this year. I was uncomfortable when I set out on this backpacking trip, as I started thinking about the grizzly bear who might be lurking around the corner but this is one of the most gorgeous places I've ever backpacked to. I'll keep taking the plunge, because I imagine I'll regret the experiences I don't go for, rather than the ones I jump into. This episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Mia Sullivan. Nick Baishu is our assistant producer. A big thank you to Nick Baishu Christina Sullivan, and Blair Sullivan. What would I do without your editorial feedback? And a special thanks to Anne Chambers Noble, Terry Allen, Katie Wyckoff, and Paul Cook. Original score for this episode was composed by Tim Vitulo. Our theme is by Brent Curriden. Our show art is by Christine Hostetler and Michelle Anderson. While I was producing this episode... I got the devastating news that my friend Davey passed away. Davy was a film composer. He worked in Hollywood and was gearing up to start a master's program at Juilliard. He was a charismatic dreamer, extremely dedicated to his craft. He was excited about this podcast, and we talked about collaborating on music together. He had the best smile and was the nicest guy. I'm going to miss him a lot. This episode is dedicated to the one and only Davy Thomas Tucker, who will be sorely missed. I'm Mia Sullivan, and this is Places. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.